The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. continuing our study in the Gospel of John, and uh, we're up to John chapter 15, a very, very famous passage on abiding or remaining in Christ. And it's a challenging lesson because I can teach you something you've never heard before, and it's really easy because you've never heard it before. I can teach you something you have heard before, and the challenge deepens because I've got to teach it to you in a way that you can say, wow, I hadn't thought about that. I didn't know that. Uh, I hadn't applied it that way. So this morning's challenge is taking the very familiar and turning it into something new and challenging and applicable for you. And so my challenge this morning in John chapter 15 is uh, is, is uh, a challenge for me, but I think you're going to enjoy uh, what we're going to cover this morning. Uh, to put 15 into perspective, you've got to understand chapter 14. Chapter 14 uh, is Christ discussing his departure. We talked about it over several weeks. I appreciate your patience when I wasn't here uh, to kind of put it all together, but his departure is him saying, I'm leaving, and the disciples freaking out, and we applied that in different ways. I gave you a couple of lessons about in our fear, God has a bigger plan. Christ made it clear he's going to go away, but he's coming back. In our fear, we may not see Christ coming back uh, in, a, in a physical sense. We can see him moving in ways that he's got a bigger plan. Our fear gives us a temporal, short-term perspective that we don't see him. And the lesson from John chapter 14 is even when we're scared to death, even when we don't see a way out of burdens or stresses or illnesses or things like that, God has a bigger plan. He's using us as a puzzle piece and a much bigger masterpiece. We just have to yield and realize despite our pain, despite our confusion, despite our lack of understanding, God is working. We also learned that in our anxiety, we have the Holy Spirit. In chapter 14, Christ said to the disciples, he's giving the Holy Spirit and he's giving them as a comforter and as an advocate, as someone to be in them and by their side. For us in anxiety, the, re, the, the understanding is the essence of God is as close to you as is physically, emotionally, and mentally possible. He knows your prayer request before you utter it. He knows the crisis before you experience it. He knows the diagnosis before you hear it. The Holy Spirit in our heart means God is aware of the problem before us, working on a solution in his grand plan before we can even contemplate a solution and someone there to guide us and walk us through it. So it's a source to cure our fear, source to cure our anxiety, and in our doubt, when we wonder, God, why is this happening to me? I faithfully served you. I've done what I'm supposed to do. We, like the disciples in the upper room, don't understand our role in the plan. We don't understand what God is doing in our lives when it doesn't work out exactly as we dreamed, exactly as we fantasized about, exactly as we had visions of grandeur about. When it doesn't work out, we doubt. And the lesson from chapter 14 is Christ comforts us is Christ's comfort and presence in us strengthens us. We talked in chapter 14 about a concept that was new to a lot of you guys of the double indwelling. And I taught it to you when you talk to a little child and say, where is Jesus? They'll say, in my heart. And that's theologically true. So Christ indwells our heart. 
The Holy Spirit indwells our heart. They do different things. I talked to that in chapter 14. But when two-thirds of the Godhead, two-thirds of who God is, indwell you, indwell me, that is comforting. It's intended to be protective. It's intended to be strengthening to us. It's intended to be a, a source to meet all of our needs in a time of fear, anxiety, and doubt. So that's the critical part of chapter 14. Now, in 15, Jesus says... I am the vine, you're the branches, abide in me or reside in me and I'll reside in you. Sounds real simple. We're going to talk today about what that means. I'm going to take John chapter 15, I'm going to do it in three different lessons. We're going to do part two next week, we're going to do part three after that, I'm going to do John chapter 15 in three lessons. This week is the, the first one on our relationship with him. Next week, we're going to see abiding him and what that does with our relationship with others. This morning's sermon was a great bridge on those two topics because we talked about both those in the sermon. I'm going to give you the introduction this week. By way of overview, it's important to remember the passage is for believers only. The passage is for people who are already believers. Their eternal security is firm So the things we're going to read about are not talking about losing your salvation. They're talking about for the believer, what happens? If you're not a believer, this makes no sense whatsoever. If you are a believer, this is really encouraging. It's also a powerful symbol for Israel. If you took time to do an Old Testament Bible study, the idea of the vine and the vineyard for the child of God or for the people of God is all throughout the Old Testament. It's a major theme of Hosea, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and a few others. But those are major portions of the big books I just read. So as someone who knows the Old Testament, it's a symbol that you're going to, I'm going to reference a few times this morning about the role of the uh, believer in this concept of the vineyard or the child of God in this concept of the vineyard. It also has a primary focus of abiding or residing. In the King James, the New American Standard, and the NIV, it talks about abiding. If you grew up in church, that's the word you've heard. The more modern translations use a different word that I'm going to teach you about of residing. It's a little bit easier to wrap your brain around. That's why I'm going to use that word. But the focus is not on bearing fruit. It's about where you live, and when you live in the right place, what happens to your life. Fruit is the result of residing or abiding in the right home. So I'm going to give you some application on that. Keep in mind, our purpose here is not fruit. That's the byproduct. Our focus is on abiding, whereas I'm going to teach you residing in the right home. So John chapter 15, we're going to go through it, the first 11 verses this morning. Jesus says in verse 1 of chapter 15, I am the true vine and my father is the vineyard keeper. True vine is in reference to everything to a Jewish audience that came before then. Because in the Old Testament, there are some passages where the illustration of the vine in the vineyard isn't clear. When Jesus says, I'm the true vine, he's saying, I'm the ultimate illustration of the grape field. I'm the perfect illustration. And the reason why he's using this, he's going to make clear in this lesson. And he says, while he is the vine... The Father is the vineyard keeper. So Jesus is saying, I am the, the, the illustration. I am the, the vine that things are going to come out of. And there is a vineyard keeper who has a plan for what happens with the vine and all the branches that come off of it. So we've got a gardener 
and we've got the essence of the garden in verse 1. Now notice what he does. He says, every branch in verse 2, every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. Now, I use this translation because this is what Pastor Greg preaches out of. I could have used other translations, but I want to use this one because most of your Bibles use the same language. They use this idea of removes or prunes. As much as I like this translation, this one doesn't get it quite right. Let me give you a little bit of brief Greek digression because the word I highlighted in green is the exact same Greek word. And it does not mean throw away. If you look at every reference in the history of the Greek language, most of which are non-biblical, it's got two other definitions before you get to the throwaway part of the definition. This is really tiny, and I know you can't read this in the back, but I just wanted to show you I wasn't just making this up. I'm pulling from the NAS Greek lexicon. The very first definition of this word is to raise up or lift up. And the reason why this works in this context is in the vineyard, it's not like a watermelon. It's not like a melon that grows on the ground. If you let a vineyard, a grape vineyard, just grow naturally and the vines grow in the dirt, it will not produce one single grape. In order for the vineyard to work, you've got to lift up. You have to pin up the vine. That's why if you go to uh, Napa or you go to Fredericksburg or anywhere else they do grow, grow grapes, you don't see them growing out on the ground. You see them up, elevated, a little mechanism, and they are pinned or taped up, so to speak, even though they use a little metal, they'll call it taping. Uh, and that process lifts them up. And the process of lifting up lets the air circulate around them. It lets uh, the rain get on them better. It lets the vine uh, keeper trim them a little bit better to things around them. It enables them to be healthy. They're exposed to all the aspects of the atmosphere that expose them. And so it's not a matter of cutting them back or leaving them on the ground. It's a matter of lifting them up. So our imagery here is not right here throwing them away. It's lifting them up. And notice what it does when it lifts them up. And it says, it says in verses three, you're already clean because the word I've spoken to you. Now by that he's saying, you guys are saved. We're not talking about sin and getting sin out of your life. He's talking about for the believer, how do you become a stronger believer in light of chapter 14, which is scared out of your mind. I'm dying of cancer. I'm unemployed. I got debt I can't get out of. I got a relationship that I can't get through. Whatever your crisis is, he's saying we're going to get through this with this idea of the vine and abiding or residing in him. So he says, it's not about salvation, verse 3. Verse 4, here's our crux of the whole text. Verse 4, remain in me, or some of your Bibles say, abide in me, and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. So I highlighted that in green three times, because Jesus is saying it three times to the disciples, the Holy Spirit saying it three times to us. So whether it's abide, abide, abide in some of your translations, or reside, 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 it's driving home three points, don't miss it. 
to those in crisis, to those that don't know how to take the next step, he says three times so we don't miss it, reside in him or abide in him. Now, it's fascinating because this idea of remain in him, our brain struggles with. With abide, it's even harder, right? We hear the word abide, and unless you've been in church a whole bunch and just are familiar with the word, we don't use that in English. It's an old King James word that just got carried over across the centuries. It's like a Shakespearean word. Reside is a little bit easier because we can think about residing in a place, reside in an apartment. And that's the whole idea. Because this idea for the lesson that I'm going to ask you diagnostically today is where are you living? Think about this for a minute. Why did you like when you got your first apartment that was just yours, right? In college or growing up as a kid, you've been living with family. Maybe you had roommates in a dormitory. Maybe you had roommates in an apartment, starting out your career, but you finally got your own place. Why did you like that? Because you could do whatever you want. Why do you not like living with somebody else? Because you can't do whatever you want, right? If you're living by yourself, you can walk around in the ugliest, rattiest bathrobe and no one's going to give you a hard time, right? That's why you like living by yourself. You can wear whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. You live by yourself. When you live with someone else, what's the obvious implication? You're with somebody else. You got to take care of their rules. You got to follow their rules. You got to deal with the fact there's somebody else here. I can't do everything I want. That's the essence of the lesson. The focus of the lesson is where are you living? And the reality is most of us spiritually and physically are living by ourselves. Now, most of us here have someone we live with, whether it's family, whether it's extended somebody else. Most of us are rarely 100% by ourselves long-term, but you still get the point. Even if you are married, even if you've got kids of any age, you get the point of living by yourself versus living with somebody else, which is our illustration here. Now, notice what Christ says. It's not just relating to or remaining in him in an existential kind of way, a metaphysical kind of way, where I say, I'm remaining in him like I'm remaining a member of Dwight and Vina Martin's family right? That's kind of an existential thing because we're close. I'm close to my mom. I see her almost every day. I live my life. She lives her life. I'm not really remaining in her family, even though I'm always going to be the son of Dwight and Vina Martin, okay? When Christ says what I've underlined, remain in me, he's saying this is not metaphysical. This is not existential. He's saying, I'm being dead serious. You're remaining in me. So, that's where we start to wrap our brain around it and go, what's he talking about? How does that work to remain in me when he's Jesus and we're our individual selves? What exactly does that mean? I want you to think back to my concept of living with someone else, okay? Pause for just a second and imagine what it's like for me to move into your house or you to move into my house, right? I got a really big house in Memorial, and when the kids aren't there and the family's not there, it's really quiet. So there's lots of room to you to move in. But if you move in, certain things are going to take place, right? If I move into your house, certain things are going to take place, all right? Let me give you some illustrations of why Jesus is using this phrase. 
If I'm in your house or you're in my house, you are obeying the rules of the residence, right? If the rules of the residence are you're going to do certain things, you're not going to do certain things, what happens if you don't follow the rules of the residence? I'm saying time for you to go, right? If you've got rules, like your rules are no smoking. I don't smoke, okay? But if your rules were no smoking and if hypothetically I did smoke, and you walk in, I'm just smoking like a chimney. What's the first thing you say? Get out of here, right? If you don't obey the rules of the residence, it doesn't mean you're dead. It doesn't mean you're destroyed. It just means you're not in the blessing of the residence. So get out of the residence. You don't make demands of your own wants and desires. If you're in my house long-term or I'm in your house long-term, what happens if one of us shows up and says, today... I'm thinking it's time for T-bone steaks, right? Today, I think it's time for some of the finest Pinot Grigio. I want the best wine at the wine store, right? The host of the residence is going to go, I wasn't thinking anything remotely close like that. You're the guest. You don't get to make the demands. So you don't make demands of your wants. If you're staying with someone else long term, you submit to their desires, their needs. You don't come in saying, tonight it's the finest steak, it's the finest wine, it's the finest whatever. You don't make demands. You also honor the host. You honor them verbally. You honor them with your time. You honor them with your respect. You don't come in treating it like it's your own place and they don't exist whatsoever. You fellowship respectfully. If someone is in your home or you're in their home, you share, you talk, you say nice things, you kind of support each other. It's the reason why it's acceptable and actually can be nice to stay with somebody else for a while because you fellowship. You get to get to know them, get to experience them. It's why you don't just become roommates and you go your opposite directions. That's not any fun. That's not an emotional blessing. So you fellowship respectfully. And then you balance work, rest, and recreation. You don't come in the house where you're a guest and spend the entire time cleaning. You do that some, but not exclusively. You don't just stay in your room and sleep the whole time. You do things outside of it. So there's a balance to it. So all of those things, you get the idea. If Christ says, reside in me, think of moving into his house before we get to heaven. We can all look at that passage we saw back earlier in John where he talks about, I've made a mansion for you. I've made a place for you to reside. And it's a place my father has created. I look forward to you coming there. We talked about what all that means. And this is the idea of that before we get to heaven. It's the idea of there's a place where we live. And for some of us, it's hard to go there mentally, but it's literally a place where we live where we're always with him. We're obeying the rules of the residence. We're not making our demands. We're honoring the host. We're fellowshipping. We're balancing. We're doing all these things. And then notice how verse 4 ends. The purpose is, just as the branch is unable to produce fruit unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. What he's saying is, when you become a believer, you want to do something. Right? Most people become a believer and they want to do something. At a basic level, you want to be a better man or woman. Right? You want a better language. You want better relationships. You want to be a better person. At a deeper level, you want to be a better spouse, a better parent, a better child for your older parents, whatever it may be, better employer, employee. You want to be better. You go deeper. You want to use your spiritual gifts. 
I want to use my gifts to fill in the blank, whatever one of your spiritual gifts is, you want to use it and be a kingdom difference maker. At all those levels, we inherently want that. If you're a believer, your heart is you want to be different, you want to be better. Jesus is saying you cannot do that at all. You cannot be a better person. You can't be a better spouse. You can't be a better partner. You can't be a better parent or child. You can't be a better employer or employer. You can't do any of that unless you move in with somebody else, with him. You got to get out of your mind. I'm living in my own place and I'm going to now leave that and move in with somebody else. He's trying to get us out of the idea of my house, my rules, my dress, my food, my stuff. And you say, I'm going to go live in somebody else. Now, what he's doing is he's doing an earthly practice run for us to go to heaven. Think about reality. If we're jumping into heaven someday at the end of our lives and we don't do this. On earth, we love the idea of moving into our heavenly home, right? We love that idea. We got this idea, there's a place in heaven for me that looks like the greatest mansion in River Oaks or Beverly Hills or, you know, Park Avenue in New York or whatever it is. We get this idea of grandeur, I'm moving in. Why do you think Jesus Christ wants you to move into that house if you can't move into his house here while you're still here? You see the disconnect? I'm going to live in my house. I'm going to wear my ratty bathrobe. I'm going to wear the, eat the food I want to eat. I'm going to do whatever I want, say whatever I want, watch whatever I want, read whatever I want, live in my own house, doing my own thing. But when I get to heaven, I'll change all that. Jesus like, uh-uh, and your house ain't in River Oaks, right? The idea is earth is becoming more Christ-like, Earth is becoming more in his home. So we step into heaven. It's just more of what we had here. It's not different than what we had here. It's more of what we had here. So the mental imagery is I've got to stop living in the equivalent of my own house, doing my own thing any way I want, searching for my own happiness, searching for my own thing, doing whatever it is I want. And I've got to be obedient to what God wants me to do as a child of him, as a spouse, as a parent, as a child, employer, employer, all the different roles in life we are. And God in chapter 15 is stop living the way you want to live in your own house, your own place, your own will. And he's saying, start living now like you're going to live in heaven, which is in my house with me, my rules, my situation, my uh, proper way of living together, just like when we go live with somebody else. Now, theological insight here. As the fruit proves the identity of the plant and reveals the state of health, so does the evidence of our vitality as a believer in Christ. As a layman, if you and I walk up to a pear tree situated right next to an apple tree that does not have fruit. You and I cannot tell the difference. A horticulturalist can look at the leaves and the bark and tell it in two seconds. None of us can unless you specialize in pears and apple trees because they are exactly the same otherwise. There's minor differences you and I can't see. A specialist can see it in two seconds. You and I, though, if a pear tree produces pears, 
and an apple tree produces pears, in less than one second, you can say, that's the apple, that's the pear. They're different. They look different. You don't know what it is unless you're the specialist until you see the fruit. You don't know how healthy it is until you see the fruit. I can show you a really, really good plant. Looks green, looks big, looks vibrant. Until it produces fruit, you don't know how healthy it is. So it's more than appearance. It's more than size. It's more than age. If I want to diagnose something, it looks at the fruit. Now, this is a critical part of us as human beings, as Christians. Because I can look all around the world, I can look at all kinds of different people, and I can wonder, I wonder if they're a believer. I'm curious, is that person a believer in Jesus Christ? I can look at a politician, I can look at someone in, on the television, I can look at somebody that's in the news, and I can say, I wonder if they're a Christian. How do you know? The answer is by the fruit. What comes out of their mouth? What comes out of their actions? What comes out of those that they're in relationship with? Do you see destruction or do you see blessing? Do you see drama or do you see calmness? Do you see peace or do you see anxiety and fear? What kind of fruit is coming out of their lives? Do you see forgiveness? Do you see mercy and grace or do you see self-centeredness? Do you see narcissism? Do you see self-centeredness that's just destructive in everything they encounter? The fruit that comes out of us is the evidence of our Christianity. That is why in the book of James, James describes this exact point by what we see. We know Abraham in the Bible was a Christian by the fruit that came from his life. We know David was a believer. Our lesson this morning, a man of God's own heart. Not by gauging sin versus non-sin, but by gauging the fruit that comes out of his heart. Talked about in the lesson this morning. So for us to see the identity of the plant and reveal the state of health means it's all about the fruit we show. So if you want others to know you're a believer, it is not a matter of willpower. It is not you saying, I'm going to be a better spouse. I'm going to be a better child or parent. I'm going to be a better grandparent. I'm going to be a better boss or employee. I'm going to be better whatever it is. It is not a matter of willpower. It's a matter of where you reside. Where do you abide? Because the whole point of the lesson is where you reside is going to produce fruit. If you're in the right house, there's going to be a lot of blessing. If you're in the wrong house, there's going to be no blessing. So the question is, in whose house are you residing? Now, Verses 5, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. That's taking the illustration a little bit deeper. Vineyard keeper, God the Father. There's one main vine, Jesus Christ. There's a lot of little things coming off that vine that are branches that are going to have grapes on them. Grapes are the fruit. In between Jesus and the fruit is the branch, and that's us. He says, the one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Now, Let's look at the one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. Notice where it starts. It starts with our obedience. We've got to remain in him. That means on a daily basis, I've got the choice of which house I'm going to live in. I can live in my own house or I can live in the house with Jesus. 
And if I make the choice to live in his house, it says, and I in him, which is guaranteed. We've already looked at that. He's chapter 14 in us, always going to be with us, produces much fruit. It is a promise. It is the essence of how to deal with anxiety, fear, and doubt. I stay in the right house. He promises to stay in me. That will produce not some fruit, much fruit. It's almost God's math. I stay in the right house. He's in me. You're going to have much fruit. I've never met a Christian that says, I want to live the substandard Christian lifestyle. I've never met a Christian that says, I would like to have the least amount of blessing from God I can possibly get. Right? Our human nature wants more. Our human nature wants the best. Our human nature wants that aspect of, uh, of God's fingerprints on us to want more of his goodness, more of his love, more of his security, more of his strength. So this is promising much more of that fruit. Now, notice how it ends. Because you can do nothing without me. Now, there's a fascinating corollary I'm willing to bet you've never wrapped your brain around. Because the idea of doing nothing without me at one level is going to the core essence of our sin nature. Our sin nature for you and I, despite our age, is really similar to the sin nature of a two-year-old. The sin nature of a two-year-old is characterized by one word. No! <laughs> we say it's time to go to bed. No! We say it's time to eat. No. Put your pants back on. No. Right? Two-year-olds just learn that word and that be, their sin nature just explodes at the age of two. We call them the terrible twos because we see sin nature manifest at the age of two. We call them terrible twos. You could say sinner. Toddler sinner. We don't like that because toddlers are so cute. We'd never call them that. That's what it is. It's human nature manifesting at the age of two. The sad part is, throughout life, that sin nature is still there. God's got rules, God's got a plan, God's got a will, and we say, no! We want to solve problems by ourselves, we want to come up with our way of doing treatment, our way of doing a plan, our way of doing a job, our way of doing a relationship, and it's all me, me, me. Somebody says there's a different way to do it, there's a different way to think about it, and our sin nature rebels, and we say, no, I'm going to do it my way, I don't care about your rules. And Jesus is saying, you can do nothing. You cannot be a spouse, a parent, a child, employer, employer, friend, whatever job you want in life, you can't do it without him. The corollary I want to teach you that you probably haven't thought about is while that's true for us, think about what it means for other people as it relates to us. There's some people that want to bless you. There's some people that want to love you. There's some people that want to care for you. Despite all of those good-natured desires to love you, care for you, and take care of you, and just nurture you, and treasure you, they can't do that outside of Christ. You can do it in a physical sense. You can do it in an emotional or mental sense, but it's all going to be temporary. To do it in a meaningful, transformative, lifelong eternally impacted sense it takes Jesus Christ because otherwise our sin nature flares and eventually you say no to do it with a permanent yes it takes God now think of the other corollary to that while that's true for those that want to bless you 
Think about those who want to hurt you. Think about those who hate your Christian lifestyle, who are hurt because of something you've done in the past, who are hurt because of something that you may not have done in the past that they wanted you to do. Think about that. Here's a life lesson. The inability to do anything without Christ applies to those who want to hurt us as much as it applies to those who want to help us. That means somebody, you may know somebody who wants to hurt you. You may know somebody who wants your demise. You may know somebody who wants the opposite of your blessing. This says they can't do that if Jesus is protecting you. They can do nothing to you because Jesus is protecting you. So just like they can't do something to bless you, they can't do anything to hurt you if Jesus is there between you and them. Powerful, powerful lesson. Verse 6, if anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. This is one of the most misunderstood verses in the entire Bible. Let me hit it straight up front. This does not mean you and I can lose our salvation. Remember the fundamental rule of biblical interpretation. Scripture is interpreted by other scripture. I can show you five dozen verses that say you and I cannot lose our salvation. You can fracture the relationship. You can suffer a loss of blessing. You can be crippled for the rest of your life. Salvation is salvation, and you're a child of God if we're always a child of God. But if you don't do what God says to do, there are implications. The illustration I've given a hundred times is no matter how bad I am, I am always a son of Dwight and Vina Martin. I can be the biggest felon, the biggest thug, the biggest immoral, horrible person alive. I'm still a son of Dwight and Vina Martin. They're embarrassed they could be if I'm a horrible person, but I'm still a child, just like with you and God. You can fracture the relationship, but you're still a child of God. What this is talking about is abiding. It's talking about residing. It says if you're not going to reside in the home, some stuff's going to get burned up. So let's talk about what's going to get burned up. He says, thrown aside like the branch and withers. The description here is one of pruning a particular branch. It doesn't mean an entire person is thrown out. It's the idea that an offshoot of Christ, the grapes that are coming off a branch, the fruit that's coming from the life of a believer, some of the grapes get thrown out. Now, if you've ever had a garden, this makes all the sense in the world. If you're a city guy or a city gal, this doesn't make any sense at all. But if you've ever had a garden, or your parents had a garden, your grandparents had a garden, you know you walk through and you say, some of the fruit stays, some of the fruit's not worth eating. Some of it just develops different ways, just the way God works in, as the gardener. Some is edible, some is not, some you want to keep, some you want to throw away. When it describes this idea of throw them into the fire, we're in a biblical context, our brain goes straight to the fires of hell. That is not what this is talking about. Remember the concept introduced? We're talking about believers. It means we're not talking about non-believers in hell. That's point number one of the lesson. Point number two is believers have fruit. Some believers can have a life with no fruit whatsoever. There are funerals that take place every day in this city 
And every week in this church where a believer, no doubt is in heaven, live their life with no spiritual fruit. Happens all the time. He's talking about throwing in the fire as it relates to the works of a believer. Okay? Now, here's a great dividing point. As a believer, I can live my life married, with kids, with a job, with parents, with friends. And I can do that not abiding in Jesus Christ. I can do it me, 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 me. It's all about Chris Martin. I'm a believer. I had a salvation experience. I know my, my security. I know my Bible. But I'm living life all about me. I can be a spouse, but not the one God wants me to be. I can be a parent, but not the one God wants me to be. I can be an employer, but not the one God wants me to be. I can be all these different roles in life, but it's not the one God wants me to be. I've got fruit from Chris Martin. The time I put into a relationship, the time I put into a job, the time I put in, it's just Chris Martin's fruit. This has given us an illustration. That's not fruit that's going to be any good. Versus when I reside in Christ, not in my house, but his house, I got a different kind of fruit in my marriage. I got a different kind of fruit in my kids. I got a different kind of fruit in my job. I got a different kind of fruit in my relationships. It's a different kind of fruit that is arising out of the house that I choose to live in. Am I living me, me, me? Or am I living in somebody else's house, their rules, their standards, their respect, their honor, their balance? I'm getting a different kind of fruit. I told you to start the lesson that there were all kinds of illustrations using this vineyard idea in the Old Testament. Hosea, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Zechariah, it's like seven different times. One of them is Ezekiel, Ezekiel 15, 1 through 5. Jesus talks, or sorry, God talks to Israel about the vine, and he basically says, y'all have been doing it wrong. Y'all have been doing it your own way, your own interpretation of what God means, your own interpretation of who God is, and when you do it your own way, the fruit gets thrown out. Ezekiel 15 says you are not useful fruit bearers if you're doing it your own way. So I could read it all. I Trust me, you can read it in your quiet time. Ezekiel 15 says do it your own way. It is worthless fruit. Yes, you can produce fruit that looks good. You can have a spouse that looks good, a marriage that looks good, kids that look good, a job that looks good, a house that looks good. God is saying you're producing a temporal, short-term, inadequate fruit. Theological insight. When we fail to abide or reside with Christ, the works we try to do for God will be cast aside and allowed to burn because they are our works and not His. The idea of God taking fruit that comes off a branch is like you look in at strawberries or grapes or melons or whatever it is and saying, this one's good, I'll keep it, bring it into the house. This one is bad, I'm not going to bring it in. Some of it looks bad, some of it looks appealing, but it's not really good if you really know what you're doing. This theological insight is if we're not residing all of our works, no matter how good intention they are, no matter how well, much we wrap our brain around saying this is the right way to do it, if we're not residing in somebody else's house, Jesus Christ's house, and residing in our house where it's me, 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 the fruit that comes out of the relationship, the job, the whatever it is in life is not going to be good fruit. 
Look how he continues, verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. Now, if the prior verse I read is the number one most mistaken verse in the Bible, by those that think you can lose your salvation, this one's number two. Number two most misunderstood, misapplied verse in the entire Bible. Because the name it and claim it crowd... The Pentecostal charismatic crowd looks at this verse and says, you want a new car? John 15, 7. You want a new 8,000 square foot house? John 15, 7. You want a new shiny Mercedes? John 15, 7. You want a million dollars in your bank account? John 15, 7. And that's not what it's talking about. This is not name it or claim it. Notice number one, there's predicates to this. If... That means you don't get to the end till you start the if. If you remain in me. Remain in me means guess whose house you moved out of. Your house saying me, 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 and your size, you know, physical house, your size car, your size job, your size bank account, whatever. That's all me, me, me. That's not living in God's house. Living in God's house is his rules, his desire, his meals, his plan. I'm, I give up my house. I'm moving into his. And my word remains in you. That means Old Testament, New Testament. That means God's word. Is there anywhere in God's word where a saint of God prayed for the size of their house? prayed for the size of their transportation. God, give me a better horse to ride on. You don't see it in the Bible. You see blessing in Solomon and David and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You don't see them praying for material wealth. You don't see them naming it and claiming it. You see them doing that in a spiritual sense as it relates to demonic warfare. You see it as it relates to evangelism. You don't see it as it relates to material things. So you got to remain in the right house. You got to remain in his word. Then what you want when you live in his house and you know his word, will be done for you. How do I apply that? Let me give you some insight. When we abide or reside in Christ, as our hearts and minds become more in line with him, so our thoughts and prayers become more in line with his will. Think about this. Think about who you have lived with for a long period of time in a residential idea. You live with your parents as a child. In many respects, you become like them. That's why love produces loving. Abuse becomes abusive. Think about the people you've lived with as an adult. Roommates, spouses. You become more like them. You adopt in many respects their temperament. You adopt many aspects of their habits. When you reside with someone, you become more like them. Same thing. You give up the me, me, me. You start reliding Christ to become more like him. As hearts and minds become more in line, our thoughts and our prayers become more Christ-like. That's the whole process of sanctification. My thoughts are more like him. My desires are more like him. My mind is more like him. Everything we're doing and thinking and feeling is more like him. Then our thoughts become more in line with him. So if all of a sudden I can start praying with the heart of Christ as opposed to the heart of Chris, it's transformative. 
I can pray with the heart of Christ rather than the mind of Chris, it becomes totally transformative. So the idea of getting what we pray for means as we become more Christ-like, the prayers are his prayers. He is God. We're going to see the fulfillment of the prayer because his will is known. He knows what the plan is. He knows what the barriers have to be overcome, and he does it. Notice verse 8. Jesus says, My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So he says in verse 8 here, the goal is the production of fruit. He wants us to reside in him so that we can be seen as his and, that's proved to be his disciples, and be good fruit. Now, what's the purpose of fruit? Ultimately, what's the purpose of fruit? It's to be consumed. It's for someone else's blessing, right? The purpose of fruit is nourishment. The purpose of you living in the right house and having the right fruit is not all about you. It's not about you saying, aren't I the world's best looking grape? <laughs> I am a beautiful grape. I'm luscious. I'm healthy. I'm pretty. Aren't I a good grape? Right? That's not the purpose of grapes. Right? You may have plastic ones sitting on the counter for the purpose of looking at, but you got a real one? What happens if it's not consumed? It rots. Yeah. That means the whole point of fruit is to be a blessing to someone else. The whole point of residing is not about you. It is not about your happiness. It's not about your contentment. It has nothing to do with you. It is, can I be a blessing to those that God has put me into my life? Can I be good fruit to the spouse God gave me? Can I be good fruit to the children that God gave me? Can I be good fruit to the parents that God gave me? Can I be good fruit to the boss that God gave me? Can I be fruit to the friends that God gave me? If you can't self-diagnose and say on a daily basis, I am fruit for those that God has put into my life, you are failing the Christian walk. Because God gives you the ability to reside in him, bear fruit so others can enjoy it. Now, what happens when fruit is enjoyed by somebody else? You enjoy that fruit, you bite into the strawberry, you bite into the grape, and what do you do? You say, mmm, that is good, right? Now, I know there's some people that are weird and don't like fruit, okay? Your sin nature hadn't been fixed yet. <laughs> But to those of us that have gotten through it, we really enjoy fruit, right? It's sweet. It's good. And if you don't like fruit, I'm putting you on my prayer list. <laughs> because fruit is good, right? God made it sweet. God made it good. So the idea of producing much fruit is not, look at how awesome my fruit is. Look how awesome my grape is. Look how awesome this stuff is that God gave me. It's all about other people. It's using it so not only can you be seen but you can be enjoyed for what God puts you on this planet to be enjoyed for. Your wisdom, your knowledge, your experience, your love, your tenderness, your kindness, all those different aspects, all those fruits of the Spirit. It's not just intimacy, it's gifts from God to bless other people. Look at how in verse 9 continues. As the Father has loved me, I've also loved you. Remain in my love. That word comes up again. We're seeing it over and over again on purpose. We've got to remain, we've got to abide. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love. Just as I've kept my Father's commands, remain in my love. Now, I highlighted in green so even the slowest of us are not going to miss this. 
okay? Because now he's not talking about just living in his house. He's talking about living in a specific room in his house, okay? God's house has got a whole bunch of rooms. He's got rooms full of wisdom. He's got rooms full of health. He's got rooms full of strength. He's got rooms full of peace. But you know what the living room is? The living room is love. Why do I know that? 1 Corinthians 15. The greatest of these is love. God's living room is love. Genesis 1 through Revelation 21, God is love. 1 Corinthians 15, the greatest of these is love. God's living room is love. So this says you don't just reside in his house. You reside in the room that's got love. Remain in my love, remain in my love, remain in his love, God the Father's love. Why does it say this? Because immediately on the heels of what I just taught you, bearing fruit is not about you saying, look at me, I'm healthy, look at me, I'm great, look at me, I'm successful. No, 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 no. It's not about you just being gorgeous fruit. It's about you blessing somebody else. If you're going to bless somebody else and you're involved in it, guess what you do? You decide who's worthy of your fruit. You're like, eh, I don't think you need my fruit. You need fruit that looks like you. You need fruit that's your color. You need fruit that's your political persuasion. You need fruit that's your age. You need fruit that's your whatever socio-demographic division you want to put on it. But when fruit is fruit, it is available for everyone. God's creation was designed so that everybody can enjoy the grapes and the strawberries and the melons and everything else because God made them for everybody. The fact some people says, I choose not to consume it, that's up to them. That's their choice. I jokingly talked about your sin nature in a biblical sense. That's true as well. They may not like God's fruit. They may not want to eat it. And God says, have at it. I created this blessing. If you don't want to eat it, that's your loss. But in this context, he's saying, remain in my love because if you don't do this, you start to discriminate with your spiritual gift. You start to discriminate with your blessing. And you're saying, God gave me this fruit. I'm only going to give it to this little part over here that I approve of. They're like me. I like them. They look like me, sound like me, have houses like me, have cars like me, have jobs like me, have families like me. I'm going to give my blessing just this little group. And we take the rest of the world and we say, that's not for me. No thanks. And verse 9 follows verse 8 because if you're going to be fruit for the world, your sin nature is going to hate a whole bunch of the world. You don't like the way they look, the way they sound, their political persuasion, their uh, sexual orientation. There's a whole bunch of things you don't like. To remain in his love is the only way the fruit of his spirit can be a blessing to the world that he intends. Otherwise, he may intend your fruit for somebody that you find distasteful, for somebody that you find immoral, for somebody that you find unlovable. And God says, I intended you to go help them and you're refusing to because you don't have love for them. So you've got to remain in love so that his will can work. Now notice what it says. It's not just remaining in his love. 
It's keeping his command. Because even though we're living in his house, even though we can say, I'm going to live in the living room of love, our sin nature is not going away until we get to heaven. Our sin nature is still going to boil up and at some point say, this is all about me. I'm doing what I want to do, when I want to do it, where I want to do it. I'm marching to my own drum. Leave me alone. I'm doing what I want to do. As soon as you start doing that, even if you think you're abiding in his home, even if you're residing in love for everybody around you, if you're not keeping his commands, you're going to drift off course. Because his commands is I'm going to live in the right house. I'm going to live in the right living room, living room of love. But I got to keep his commands because I'm going to show him obedient. It's respectful. It's his house. I'm going to follow his rules, his words with my tongue, my behavior, my use of my spiritual gifts. It's going to be all about him. Last point, verse 11, then we're going to wrap up. I've spoken these things so that you may have, the joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Notice his joy in us and our joy complete. Notice what's missing. Our own self-generated joy. Let me define it real quick. Joy is contentment regardless of circumstances. I may not be healthy when I'm really, really sick. I may not, sorry, be happy. I may not be happy when I'm really sick. I may not be happy when I'm having relational crisis. I may not be happy when I'm broke. But I can find joy. I can find contentment despite circumstances. If this is a matter of will, you cannot do it. If it's a matter of his joy, Christ's contentment despite my circumstances, that's pretty easy to wrap your brain around because he's omnipotent. He can do anything. He's omniscient. He knows everything. So his joy is easy. He's God. So his joy then becomes my joy because I can have contentment through him and because of him, not because by willpower I'm saying, I will to be content. You can't do it. Your sin nature will break you. There are circumstances you will not be content in. I guarantee it. But if it's his joy, then my joy becomes complete because complete means all I need is his joy. I don't need my willpower generating that. Let me end on these points. Quick application. It is production, the production of fruit, not position. Prayers are answered. I'm praying through him. God is glorified. I'm in his house, his living room of love. Love is stimulated. I'm not being discriminatory in how I'm using my gifts. Joy will overflow because it's his joy, not my joy. In God's garden, it always takes time before the branches are ready to produce fruit. Do you know how long it takes for the grape to appear on the vine? Three to five years. Three to five years before one grape is produced on a vine. That's why you can't come to church and leave and go start being Billy Graham the next day. It takes time. You can be transformed, you can be changed as a spouse, changed as a child, changed as a parent, changed as an employer, employee, all the different aspects of life as a friend, but it takes time to be the fruit God wants you to be. Last point, it is possible to live any aspect of the Christian life without abiding in Christ, but to do so assures disappointment and ultimate failure. 
I can be a Bible study teacher to you and not abide in Christ. Everything I do will fail. I can be a husband and not abide in Christ. Everything I do will fail. I can be a boss of hundreds and be a good one. Ultimately, everything I do will be disappointment and ultimate failure. It's eventually going to go away. Whatever role in life, you can do it without abiding in Christ. But the point is why? He's created the plan to abide, to reside, to have fruit, and to change the world. It's the last thing he says to his disciples in this chapter 15. He's going to talk about relationships. He's going to talk about some other things in verse 15. And then he says, now let's go. And in verse 15, they're packing up and leaving. So if you wonder what's the last most important thing Jesus said to the disciples, the answer is John 15. Abide in me, I'll abide in you, produce fruit, change the world. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come and study your word. We thank you for the chance to learn the importance of residing in you and stop saying me, me, me in my house where I can do anything I want. We pray that you'd give us the ability this week to move into your house, that you'd give us the ability to move out of our sin, selfish, narcissistic, self-centered homes and move in with you to have fruit, to bless those that you've put in our lives to bless so that we can be a changed man and a changed woman, a changed person and all the different aspects of life for you, not for our glory, not for our will, not for us to be just beautiful, gorgeous, desirable fruit, but fruit that you've given to other people to enjoy, nourish, sustain, and give an ounce of joy to, so that the joy of you and us can be an ounce of joy in someone else's heart, a light in a very dark world. We ask all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.